be seated. I invite you to take up your Bibles and turn with me again uh, to the New Testament this time, to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, it's found on, our text is found on page uh, 823 in Matthew 18. Those pew Bibles are here to use in church, and if you need a Bible at home, you're free to take it with you. Uh, it is our gift to you. Uh, we have plenty more to restock uh, the pews. Matthew 18, uh, verses 1 to 14 uh, this morning. Uh, those of you who have been with us, we've been in Matthew's gospel for uh, quite a long time now. I think the bulletin says this is the 51st sermon. Uh, so you may have lost track of uh, the, the outline as we've gone along. But one thing we've noticed is that Matthew tells us what Jesus is doing and teaching, sort of alternating sections. He goes and he tells us sort of a narrative of his healing, uh, of his uh, uh, confronting, of his maybe giving some parables. right? And then that's followed by a concerted section of teaching on a topic. So we're beginning this morning a third section of teaching. It's Matthew 18. And it is, it is given specifically to the disciples and through them to us, the church. So this is very much a section that is telling us as the people of God how to follow Jesus and how to live. So you should always listen, right, when we read the Bible, but especially this morning. Uh, listen for what it has to say uh, to each of us. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Father, these are weighty verses and weighty calls for us to consider the path of humility that we have watched your Son walk 
and where he has called us to follow. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us this morning and that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction according to your word. I pray, O oh God, that you would humble each and every one of us. That may be painful. We may be asking you to break certain idols of our hearts in these next couple minutes. And we pray that your spirit would not only convict, but the one that we've already sang is the Holy Comforter, would give us hope and comfort in Jesus, and would show us in these verses Christ, the great and perfect one, in whom we trust, in whom we have life everlasting. Show us our Lord and his gospel this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The boxer, Muhammad Ali, was famous for using this one phrase before his fights. He would look around at the audience, he would look at his opponents, he would look at the media around him, and he would declare, I am the greatest. He did it over and over again, and he almost always backed it up, right? He almost always won. He's known, his nickname is the Great One. Nobody else gave him that name. He claimed it for himself, calling himself the greatest one. But when nobody can beat you in a fight, I guess you are the greatest one. We love to debate greatness, don't we? We want to talk about our sports figures. Who's the greatest hitter? Who's the greatest pitcher? Who's the greatest tennis player? We want to debate greatness. Maybe we want to talk about it with our politicians, the greatest president of my lifetime, the great senators, the great judges. Maybe it's with our artist, right? Who's the great musician, the greatest painter. We love to rank people. We love to debate and discuss who's on top. And part of that, I think, is because we all want to be great. We want to be on that list. We want you to be debating how great I am, right? Our prideful hearts want that same greatness. That's how the world thinks. But Jesus has come into the world to turn all of that ranking system upside down. He has come to show us a completely different path to greatness, a different understanding of greatness, a different ranking system, we might say. Because in Jesus, the only way to go up is to go down. The way to go up to Christ's glory is down the path of Christ's humility. We've seen this the last few weeks. Last week we saw particularly the humiliation of Jesus. That he would submit himself to death and even, that final verse, to taxes. He would be humiliated on our behalf. And now chapter 18 that shows us what Christians are to be like and how we are to live is Jesus saying, you've seen me do it, now follow me. I'm not going up, I'm going down. The only way up to Christ's glory is down the path of Christ's humility. Jesus' answer in all of the chapter begins with a question. You see the question in verse 1, the question that Muhammad Ali declared the answer to, right? But that these disciples are asking, they ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now what's going on here? Who would ask such a question? <laughs> Now, just to be clear, they're not wondering if it's Jesus or not. They're looking around each other, and they're thinking, well, who's the best? Who's the greatest among us? Now, if we go back to last week, we saw Jesus tell this parable about sons of the king not paying taxes. And then it ends telling us that he's going to pay the tax on Peter's behalf, 
So we think, well, Jesus doesn't pay taxes because he's the son of the king, nor does Peter, nor do we, right? We're also sons of the king. We're also free. So you can imagine the disciples looking around saying, yeah, all of us, we're, we're free. We're all sons of the king. And then pride kicks in. I think, well, yeah, but which one of us is better than the others, right? Which one of us is, is greater than someone else? It's telling, isn't it? As if being called the sons of God on high isn't enough <laughs> for our prideful hearts. We need to know who's greater. The idea of greatness You note they're not asking who is great. They're asking who is greatest, which means they're comparing themselves to each other. The answer can't be they're all great, right? Like the parents, I love you all the same to your kids, right? It can't be like that because they want to know who do you love the most? Jesus, who's who's better than everybody? See, the category of great, it's a category of ranking. It's, It's a comparison. It means who's more important. It means who has a higher status than the others in the group. You can't just be greater. You have to be greater than someone else. Just pause for a moment and consider how we might be guilty of this. I mean, have you ever compared yourself to anyone else in this room? No hands are going up right now. (laughs) I know you have because I have, right? Who's the... Best theologian in the room? Who's the greater servant in the room? Who's the greatest parent here? Who's the greatest deacon? Who's the greatest nursery worker? Who's the greatest elder, right? Who fixed the greatest food at the fellowship meal, right? Y'all know who it is. We love to compare ourselves. We want to, to know that we are greater, maybe if not greatest, or at least greater than someone else. And Jesus comes along and he tells them the way to go up. They're all discussing how do we go up? Who's the highest? He says, you got to go down. The way is down. I mean, it's like getting on an elevator and you look around and say, we're going up, right? And they look at you and say, no, this elevator is going down. The disciples like, whoa, wrong elevator, right? I don't want to get on this one. I'm going to get on the one that goes up. I want to be the greatest. I want to be greater than everyone else. That's their question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus answers their question in two ways. Here's the two headings we're going to see this morning. He answers their question in two ways. He answers first with the picture of humility. Then he answers secondly with the path of humility. The picture and then the path of humility. Verse 2, he calls someone to him. He's going to give them a picture. He's going to give them an illustration. Who's the greatest among us? Now, who would you use as a symbol of greatness, of strength, of of power, of importance? I mean, he's probably going to call over the the local centurion, right? The most dominant fighting force, right, in Capernaum, where they are. The powerful centurion. Maybe he's going to be the example of greatness. Or maybe not him. Maybe it's religious greatness. We'll get the high priest in here. Or maybe not him. They're around the Sea of Galilee. Let's get the richest fishermen to come. And stand in the middle and point to him. Now Jesus shocks them. Because he calls a child. A child to come stand in the middle of them. This is one of a number of times he uses children to humble the arrogant. God uses children to humble 
the arrogant. Now, I don't want you to think that children, they, kept, they got in the middle and the disciples all looked at the kid and said, oh, how cute, right? <laughs> children didn't really have the status back then as they do today. Right? I mean, really, in a sense, childhood and youthfulness is almost idolized in our culture, right? We want to look younger. We want to get younger. Kids are cool and hip. We want to be like the youth generation. It wasn't like that back then, right? And they just ignored the kids. They didn't talk to them. This is a, this is a bizarre example for Jesus to bring a child forward. I mean, one commentator says that this is the first and only time in ancient literature when a child is used as a positive example. Kids were not looked up to back then. And he brings the child, and he puts the child in the middle to answer their question, who's the greatest? And look how he answers it. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop there. He doesn't say you won't be the greatest. He says, y'all talk about greatness you might not even be there, right? You need to be talking about how to get in, not how great you are once you're already in. You see how he turns their question around. I mean, it's like two of your buddies coming up to you. You're about to get married and they say, hey, we've been arguing about who's going to be your best man. And you think, best man, you're not even on the invitation list, right? (laughs) They need to concern themselves about how to get in and how do they enter the kingdom of heaven? He gives them two different instructions that are the same instruction. Verse 3 and verse 4. Turn and become like children. Verse 3. Verse 4. Humble himself. Humble yourself like this child. That's the action. Turn and become like a child. Turning is an image of metaphor for repenting. Turn and become and humble yourself like a child. The image of a child is someone of low status. So a centurion, a high priest, someone like this is high status, high importance. A child is low status. I mean, Jesus looked at the crowd and chose the lowest person in the crowd as the example to be like. So to be like a child is to make yourself low in status. To humble yourself is to lower yourself. All right? Uh, when I was growing up in, in Durham, there was a bookstore that my mom loved to take my sister and I to. And it was just a regular old bookstore and, you know, a strip mall. But it had two doors. It had the regular door, you know, the adult-sized door to go into. But then off on the side, there was a kid's door. And it was like three feet tall, and it went straight to the kid's part of the bookstore. Sounds pretty cool, right? Walk through all the boring history stuff, get to the kid's stuff, right? And mom said, I talked to her this week, that my sister and I loved to go to that bookstore. Because we love to go to the kids' door bookstore, right? Well, imagine we showed up one day and the manager says the front door's broken. Everybody has to go in the kids' door, right? Kids are like, yeah, sure, whatever. Just pop on in. Moms and dads, you know, crawling down on bad back, bad knees to sort of get through this little child's door. That's what Jesus is saying, the, the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe picture going to Publix. Some of you kids, I know, love to shop at Publix, because you get the little kids shopping carts, right? They still have those. When my kids were younger, they all wanted to go. It's like a, a trail of ducklings with the little shopping carts going around Publix, right? Banging into my, my calves as we went. <laughs> Imagine you show up to Publix one day, and all of the adult carts are broken. If you want to shop that day in Publix, you got to take the little kids' cart. Your backs are hurting, right? Just thinking about going around on those little carts, It's a funny image. It's the image of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. 
It humbles the proudest among us. It brings down the loftiest among us. You got to go through the kid's door. You got to use the kid's shopping cart. You see, the picture here in this verse of children is not to show us faith like a child, the simplicity of faith. That comes other places in scripture, and it's true. We trust God like the uncomplicated faith of a child. But here the image of children is just a low image. Jesus is showing them a picture of as low as you get. They want to say, how high can we get? And he says, the lowest place you can go. On your knees, through the kid's door. It's a picture of low status. Okay? That's the picture of humility. Now, how do we do this? What does this look like? in the church and in the Christian life. Because we often think of humility as an attitude. So if somebody pays me a compliment and I'm like, oh, no, 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 it wasn't that good, right? <laughs> trying, to, trying to brush off a compliment, sort of that, that false humility. But biblically, humility is not an attitude, it's an action. It's a repeated action. It's a lot of actions in the Christian life that shows forth humility. Verses 5 to 14, I want you to see the The path of humility. How do we humble ourselves? Now, the easy theological answer is like Jesus. Because Jesus lowered himself more than anyone could lower themselves, like a child, in his humiliation from the divine, born as an infant, that we lower ourselves like him. And just as greatest is a category, I want you to think of lowest categorically. I want you to think of it's not just me being lower before God. It's me lowering myself below other people. Okay? If greater is a comparison, lower or lesser is a category of comparison. Or to summarize it biblically from Philippians 2 verse 3, count others more significant than yourselves. How do you lower yourself in the kingdom? Count others as more significant than yourself. Not people who are more important than you, but others, everyone else. How do we do that? Jesus gives sort of two categories of teaching in these sections. And they're both what we do not do. So I'm going to give you the negative, which you don't do. And then we'll pair it with the opposite positive, what we're supposed to do. So the first negative, the first thing Jesus tells us not to do in order that we would walk on the path of humility downwards, verses 5 to 9, we do not cause any of God's children to sin. This is, his, this is what Jesus forbids, causing others to sin. Now there's a transition that happens in our verses because verse 4 says, whoever humbles himself like this child... So this is a physical child, a literal child in verse 4. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child, we think here we're still talking about a physical child because that's all he's talked about so far. In my name receives me. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these, and he switches words, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. He's now moving our metaphor, right, from actual children to children as an image of the people of God, of Christians. So the little ones, I want you to think here of Christians, the disciples who believe in Jesus, 
But more particularly than that, I want you to think how humbling it is that Jesus refers to you and me as little ones. (laughs) Not important ones, not smart ones, not righteous ones. Little ones. That's us. It's not some of you are littler than others. No, it's all of us. Some of you get it more than others. I can put it like that. But we're the little ones. And Jesus forbids us from causing other little ones to sin. All right. So stick with me. Some some technical words here for a second. Look down at verse 7. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. My Bible has a footnote there. All right. That footnote, if you're using the Pew Bible, is probably the same one. You can also translate the idea of a temptation to sin as a stumbling block. It's the same word. A temptation is, this is the noun form of the word. It means physically a hindrance, a stumbling block, something you trip over, something you stumble over. When that same word appears back in chapter 16, when Jesus is talking to Peter, remember what he says to Peter when Peter says, no, don't go suffer. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Same word. You're a stumbling block to me. That's the noun form of the word. When that same Greek word is used in the verb form, it means to trip someone up, to cause someone to stumble, to tipped someone, or to cause them to sin. So we're all in this same category. The temptations, the stumbling blocks, uh, the, the, tempt- the causing to sin. It's all the same word. It's all the same idea. And verse 7 tells us, in this world, there will always be temptations. You know that. (laughs) There are always, in this world, causes to stumble, right? The path in this world is not smooth. It is rocky. It's full of hindrances and temptations and stumbling blocks. That's a given, okay? But then he goes on to say, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Like we're all going to get tempted, but man, you don't want to be the reason somebody else stumbles and falls. Woe on you for that. Causes are inevitable in a fallen world, but man, you don't want to be one of those causes for one of God's children to sin. Where do these causes come from? Okay, we cause... Number one, in verses 8 and 9, we cause ourselves to sin. These are famous verses, verses 8 and 9. We see here Jesus speaking of the body parts that cause us to sin, that trip us up, that make us stumble. And we're to, in a gruesome language that we've seen before, we're to cut them off. We're to, we're to throw them away. Now, you probably don't know anybody that's done this. A couple people in church history did this. Didn't work out very well for them, right? <laughs> Uh, we understand this to be hyperbole, right? We understand he's saying something kind of extreme to teach us a lesson. We also know, though, theologically, it's not my hand that causes me to sin, right? It's not my eyes that cause me to sin. It's my, it's my mind. It's my heart. It's my soul. That's what actually causes me to sin. So his command to us, as we think about not causing others to sin, is let's start with ourselves. <laughs> let's take seriously... The power of sin in our own lives. And let us never grow comfortable with our own sin. Because he gives this warning. He gives it twice. A warning of fire. The end of verse 8. 
thrown into the eternal fire. And the end of verse 9 is thrown into the hell of fire. He's speaking of hell. The metaphor that Jesus uses over and over again for hell, the image he uses for hell is fire. He is teaching us to never grow weary in our fight against sin. To not give up. To not grow comfortable with sin. To not leave it alone, but to continue to fight it, to root it out, to cut it off from our own lives. Woe to those who cause ourselves to sin. All right. But there's another woe. Because not only does the Bible have a high standard for our own lives and not causing ourselves to sin, even higher than this is the standard not to cause one another to sin. We see this in verse 6. So going back up, now that we understand this concept of stumbling and tripping up, we can go back and read verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that is, causes them to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be dropped into the depth of the sea. He uses water here as an image of judgment, as he just used fire as an image of judgment. It's better to die by drowning than to be guilty of causing someone else to sin, to trip up and stumble other people. So if we are to think of humility as lowering ourselves, then as we lower ourselves, it is an act of humility to avoid causing other people who are more significant than us to not sin. You act humbly following Jesus by acting in ways that avoid as far as is possible with you, causing other people to sin in the body of Christ. That's what he forbids. The flip side of that is verse 5. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he's sort of pitting these as opposites, right? To cause someone to sin, it's bad. The opposite of that is to receive someone. This language is the context of having someone in your home. We saw it in chapter 10. When the disciples were sent out, people received them. And by receiving them, it was as it were, they were receiving Jesus. And so for us, Selfishness is caring only for my own way, not worrying if it causes you to sin or not. Humility is receiving and welcoming others. It's a selfless act by which we prioritize other people more important than ourselves. The application that the Bible gives in this category of humility is to give no offense. And we sort of think of offending someone like talking, you know, about, you know, the other political party or talking about a sports team they don't like or just saying something crass and polite company, right? That's offensive. That's not really what this is. Giving offense is causing someone to stumble. Same word. Tempting someone else. You see, we are free in Jesus. The sons are free from not paying the tax. And yet, we lay down our rights so that we can love others and not give an offense. The Puritan Richard Sibbs described a church that's marked by this. He said, imagine a church where there's a constant contest going on. And the contest is that one group of people labor to give no offense, and the other group of people labor to take no offense. 
We're competing with one another, not to offend each other and not to be offended by each other. I'd love to be part of that church, wouldn't you? (laughs) We have received rights so that we can lay them down in love. That is the first way that we walk with an action in humility by not causing any of God's children to sin. The second way is in verses 10 to 14. And that is by not despising any of God's children. Remember, it's in the negative. He's telling us what not to do, verses 10 to 14. Not to despise. He's not talking about kids, although you shouldn't despise literal kids, right? So you should love them. But he's talking about little ones within the body of Christ. Do not despise other people in the church. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's sort of obvious, isn't it, Jesus? Right? I want to show you maybe it's not so obvious. The word for despise is the word for looking down or scorning someone or devaluing them. Where, where are you when you look down at someone? You're above them, looking down, right? Humble people who value other people more than themselves, they look up at people. Arrogant people insisting that they're the greatest, they look down at people. To despise others is to look down at them. There's two times this word appears in the rest of the New Testament specifically to talk about people within the church. The first time that word appears is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. Paul writes, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in or Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The haves and the have-nots, right? The rich and the poor. Those who care only for their own needs, right? Back in that day, the church didn't supply the elements for the Lord's Supper. You brought your own. So if you're poor, you had to depend on somebody else. The rich people are bringing their own wine and bread so much they're getting drunk off of it. While the poor go hungry. That is despising from the rich to the poor in the body of Christ. The second example or occurrence of this is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul writes to Timothy. Paul's older. Timothy's a younger pastor. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. He's encouraging Timothy to live a holy life. But the implication is there's a danger in the church for the old to despise the young. The inexperienced to despise, look down on the inexperienced. So do we have these dynamics in the church? Are people older in this room than other people? Yes. Do people have more money in this room than other people? Yes. So we have this same temptation that we would look down at each other in the body of Christ. Why don't we look down at each other? Because God loves and values every one of his children the same. Because God loves and values every one of his children. We've read in Matthew already, we are of more value than the birds of the air. We are more value than the sparrows, mini sparrows. We talked about the Sabbath in chapter 12. We're more valuable than the sheep, than a sheep. Jesus goes on to talk about our value in the rest of these verses. Just to to summarize them real quick, the second part of verse 10. Jesus says, I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of, of my father who is in heaven. This is a, 
I don't understand what this verse means. So let me say that up front. This is a difficult verse to understand. Many people interpret it, or some people, that this is talking about guardian angels. That the angel of each of the little ones is before God in heaven. Now, nowhere else in the Bible talks about guardian angels. I don't, I don't think that's particularly true here. Maybe this is angels who represent the people of God sort of as a whole. Uh, some people think this is referring to the spirits of little ones after their death. Whatever it is, it's Jesus' way of telling us that we are precious in God's sight. That even the, 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 the most humble among us has representation before his throne in heaven. There's not a ranking system before God of more important people closer, less important people farther away. Everyone has the same value in the sight of God. The metaphor for this, the, the parable for this rather, is the, the shepherd with a hundred sheep. And one of those sheep goes astray. The shepherd goes and seeks after the one that's gone astray. The one who goes astray is the one that's not really believing, not really trusting, that's leaving the fold. I mean, if anybody seems like they're not as important, isn't it the one that leaves the group because they don't really care anymore? I mean, that's probably not the strongest sheep in the group anyway. And yet the good shepherd, modeling God's love for his people, seeks after the straying sheep. I imagine you've been there. And God has sought after you, even when you had no value, nothing to offer God. But his love and his kindness, he seeks after. And then the end of verse 13, he rejoices. The father rejoices over one sheep. <laughs> he rejoices over the lowest among us. Because of who we are in the eyes of God, we do not, we must not look down at one another. God does not look down at us in that way. Jesus does not look down at us. So we are not to look down at one another. Instead of, reminds me of the game when I was growing up that they would play sometimes at birthday parties, the game Limbo. Some of y'all remember this. And they play that annoying Limbo song, right? They'd give that bar between the poles and you'd have to sort of go under it and it would get lower. And, you, and if you knocked it over, you're out. And they'd play that song, How Low Can You Go, right? Over and over and over again. And uh, it was brutal. I, obviously, I hated that game. Oh. <laughs> See, the disciples, it, it's more like they're asking Jesus to play the high jump, right? They want to see how high can you go. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it's the wrong game. We're seeing how low we can go. They asked the wrong question. They shouldn't have asked who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They should have asked who's the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. And the answer is Jesus. They don't know this, but the answer to their question is Jesus. Who else humbled himself like a child? Literally, our Lord, the king of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, humbled himself as a child, a newborn child. Who is it that refuses to cause others to sin? Well, we just saw Jesus. That's why he paid the taxes, the temple tax, because he refused to cause the tax collector to sin. Who is it that receives the little ones? It is Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who will never despise and never look down upon us? It is Jesus, the friend of tax collectors 
and sinners. Who is the good shepherd that will leave the 99 to go after the one? It is Jesus who not only goes after the one, but lays down his life for the sheep. The value that God places us on us, more value than birds and, and sheep. What value does Jesus place upon us? He redeems us, not by silver and gold, but by the very precious blood of Christ. The humble, not attitude, the humble actions of Jesus open wide the door of heaven to us, and we enter like children. He is the lowest, and he is the greatest. He counted others as more significant than himself, and so we count others more significant than ourselves. The only way up to Christ's glory is down the path of Christ's humility. Come, let us follow him down, and he will raise us up. Let's pray.